Richard Miles is a friend and parliamentary colleague with a fascinating background. In some sense, he's deeply political. He worked at the ACTU and the National Union of Students. Uh, he entered Parliament in 2007 and has steadily worked his way through Parliamentary Secretary, Cabinet Minister uh, and now Labor's Deputy Leader. Uh, but he's also got a quirky side. Uh, his love for the Geelong Cats for golf, his collections of snow globes and airline magazines. Richard takes his speeches seriously. And now he's just written a fascinating new book called Tides That Bind, part of Monash University's National Interest Series. And it's not on the kind of first-order political question you might expect a deputy leader to write about, but instead it is about an under-researched area, Australia's role in the Pacific. I'm really delighted he's taken time to discuss it with me today. Richard, thanks so much. It is an absolute pleasure to talk with you, Andrew. And given that you have written about the success of the Geelong Football Club in your own books, I don't think it's fair to describe it as quirky. Indeed, the uh, the <laughs> most productive uh, t- team in the AFL for a while there. Um, and where I'm from, uh... it is completely mainstream to be completely <laughs> fanatical about this team. <laughs> All right, well, and we won't go into snow globes for now. Let's, uh, okay, let's sta- well, start with the Pacific. Um, you say you, you fell in love with the Pacific in 1984. Tell us about that first encounter. Well, I was uh, 16. It was a trip to Papua New Guinea, a school trip that was organised uh, through Geelong Grammar. When I look back at it now, I cannot believe uh, the school actually put that together. In this day and age, I can't imagine how you'd do insurance for a trip like that to begin with. But we uh, flew straight into Port Moresby from Melbourne. We had a night in Port Moresby where there was sort of a barbecue with various host families that we were staying with. And then literally the following morning, we're on a plane into the Highlands to uh, a place called Simbai, which is in the Dane Highlands. So we, we were there on the second night. And now we're in a village, like we've landed on a grass airstrip. We are met by a Sing Sing, which is, you know, the, the people dressed in uh, the birds of paradise kind of headwear, um, extremely colourful, playing uh, drums and instruments as we uh, marched from the airfield up to the village hall. Uh, you know, we're, not, we're talking about uh, not quite grass huts, but, but you know, not, not far from, from that. Um, and, uh, and it was extremely uh, different to anything I'd seen before. The, over the next few days, we go on a hike through the highlands, and it, it is always wet in the highlands. In fact, it literally rains pretty well every day. It's, it's, it's the place of the highest uh, average number of days per year where there is rain, I think, in the world. Um, and... But there'd been a particularly heavy rainfall in the preceding period, and so the path we were meant to take was washed away, which meant that we went on a different route and find ourselves uh, in a small, a really small village now called Sarap. Um, and there as we're walking in, um, you know, we have a sense that we are in a place that, well, hasn't been visited for a while, at least by people of European background, uh, I'm pretty sure that's right because all the young kids from, you know, I don't know, under the age of sort of three or four were all, you know, wide-eyed looking at us. They kept kind of touching our hands as we walked past them. Um, and it was really clear. They, we, there's a whole lot of kids there who'd never seen somebody who was white before. Um, and, and now this is something 
as exotic as it, it's really possible to imagine for a 16-year-old to be experiencing who literally the week before was, was here in Geelong. Um, and, you know, in that moment, you just uh, saw that life is led in a really different way in, in other parts of the world and, in fact, in another part of the world which is relatively close to us. Um, and life is led in a radically different way. I mean, a, a sense of what life means, of where joy comes from, of how long how long life goes for. You know, the whole lot of fundamentally basic questions are all just completely different. But um, it was joyous. It was full of life. Um, it was kind of uh, pulsating. Um, and it, for me, it absolutely was love at first sight. And and I felt then that this was probably, well, definitely the most exotic thing I'd ever seen. But, but you know, when I look back at it now, um, you know, I'm 54, so that's what uh, the better part of 40 years later, um, I, I still think that's probably the most exotic thing I've seen. Like, it was really an amazing experience to have at that age. Um, and, you know, it's, it's meant that it's a place that I've kept coming back to in one guise or another throughout my life. You note that uh, Papua New Guinea has some 832 languages and it's famously mountainous. In some sense, what makes it an anthropologist's dream makes it a public policy specialist nightmare uh, and the place has not seen the increases in living standards that so many parts of uh, the uh, the Asia-Pacific have, uh, have, have witnessed. Is there a sense of sadness in you also that the 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 prosperity of Australians has increased so much more rapidly than Papua New Guineans in, in that period since 1984? Yes there is and I, and I think in in that observation you really get the for me what is the clarion call of what needs to be our objective in Papua New Guinea but in the Pacific more generally when when our prosperity has gone forward so significantly and and we have not seen anything like uh, a growth in, the, in prosperity at the same rate, not just in PNG but throughout the Pacific. And yet, this is a part of the world where we can make a difference, where we can um, seek to to influence, which has something to do with us. Uh, yeah, I, I think all of that needs to sit pretty heavily with with us in terms of the way we see our place in the world, the way we see our role, and and, the, and ultimately, therefore, the way we see foreign policy. And and really, that's a large part of the. The thesis of the book. I mean, there are, to be fair, lots of challenges um, that that exist in PNG, as you've rightly described, uh, and throughout the Pacific. But uh, and and there's a whole lot of um, life and and kind of cultural value that that you, you don't, no one would want to see removed. I mean, the, uh, it, it, there, there's a way that life is lived in PNG that you don't want to change, and and people in PNG wouldn't want to change. Um, that said, it is reasonable for uh, people in PNG and throughout the Pacific to seek to aspire to the sorts of improvements in living standards and social conditions, health standards, education standards that we do here. I mean, um, the people of the Pacific are entitled to development um, and, and I think that can be done in a way which doesn't um, compromise cultural heritage and that's obviously the path that the Pacific wants to walk. It's the path that we should be doing everything we can to support them in walking. You were given the role of Parliamentary Secretary to the Pacific uh, under the, uh, the the Rudd government. Did you feel that was a bit of a consolation prize at the time? I mean, that's, that's how most people would feel. 
Uh, no, I didn't. I, I, I no, I didn't. That's that's a that's a good question. So I, I like I'd been to the Pacific after that trip in as, as a school kid. I'd been back when uh, as an article clerk. Well, I'd actually been as a tourist before that while I was in, in studying at university. I'd been to uh, Vanuatu, but uh, I went back as an article clerk when I was at Slater and Gordon. Back to PNG. Um, I when I was at Slater's, I also went to Tonga um, a couple of times. Um, and then in the union movement, I uh, went to uh, Fiji a couple of times, I think, and, and went to PNG a number of times when I was at the ACTU building a relationship with the, uh, the PNG Trade Union Congress. Um, so I'd been to the Pacific quite a lot before uh, I came to Parliament. Um, and actually, in, in many respects, it was my dream job, I suppose, from the way I would interpret it in terms of the, the kind of question you, you ask is, you know, I, I wondered whether I was allowed to be excited about having this job, whether, whether everyone else would see it as something of a, of a consolation prize. So deep down, I, I was really excited um, about getting it, but, you know, there was probably older wiser heads saying, oh, you don't want to do that job. That's, that's not the main game here. Um, and I'm saying, but and I'm, and in my heart, I'm thinking, but I'd really love to do it. Um, and um, and so you know, I I just embraced what I what I really wanted to do, and and when I got the opportunity, and um, and it, and you know what it is it is one of the great professional experiences of my life. Full stop. I'm I am so glad I had the opportunity to do it, um, and uh, you know it, it was it was an absolutely fantastic experience, and and I think. It, you know, it got it, it allowed me to see the entirety of the Pacific, really. I mean, I, I went to pretty well every political entity that has a, has a runway. Um, so I really did get a unique perspective on the Pacific in that sense. But uh, having thought a lot about foreign policy and strategic policy throughout my political life as the areas of policy interest that I've, that I've had, um, I really firmly have the view that having that experience there is is almost the foundation um, at least it is for me in terms of how I see the world and how I think how I see Australia's place in the world so I, I, for me it was a kind of a foundational experience in terms of the, the broader foreign policy picture and, and again I, I hope that I pick up some of that thinking in the book a lot of the visits that you, uh, you you did at that time were to do with Australia's campaign to win a seat on the United Nations Security Council. And uh, one of the observations you make in the book is about Australia's role in the Pacific vis-a-vis the United States, which you say is is often looking to Australia for guidance as to as to what its role should be, and and often not finding that. And then New Zealand, which you uh, you describe as having a greater sense of purpose than Australia in the Pacific, can you expand on on those two relationships? Yeah, I, and and I, and for me, actually, I think both relationships help help frame what the Pacific means for Australia. Um, so you know, it was just to give a little bit of context. It, it originally. Uh, in, in probably the first year and a bit of, of working in the role, um, it was just focused on our place in the Pacific and what we could do. The fact that we were running for the Security Council was something we kind of spoke about at the end of meetings, but it wasn't the guiding light. Uh, as we got closer to 2012, and October, October 2012 was when the vote happened, um, it, it became a bigger 
part of what we were doing, not just in the Pacific but elsewhere. But it also became clear that uh, in many ways the Pacific's support for Australia was a fundamental global reference really for us. Um, it, it, it's hard to imagine how we would have been able to move forward with support in other parts of the world without that support from the Pacific. It, it, they kind of are our global referee in a way. Um, and, and that became really clear. I think, I think PNG specifically is, is, is a critically important country in terms of how the rest of the world sees us. What, what PNG says about us um, is mm. listened to significantly. But as, as to your question, um, I mean, to start with the US, I, I, you know, I found uh, what was really remarkable was, was the degree to which here was this, well, the global superpower at the time with um, assets and um, interests and presence on a scale that we can barely imagine, um, asking us for um, not just guidance, but direction, you know, literally saying, we'll do whatever you want, just tell us what it is you, you think we should do. Um, and and the degree to which they were putting their, themselves at our disposal, I, I thought was, was pretty amazing. And it kind of um, flew in the face of this idea that the relationship that we have with the United States is defined by the United States telling us what to do and we simply follow. Um, I mean, sure, they're, they are, they're, they're a very big country, they're, they are a superpower and we're a much smaller country and we're a middle power. And so more often than not, um, there is a, a US lead and there is us following, but it's not quite right to say that all we do is what they say. Um, in fact, here was a moment where the mutuality in our relationship with the United States was, was very manifest. They, they wanted to know... Uh, they wanted to follow us. You know, what, what should we do? What, where do you think we should go? Um, and that happened time and again. Um, and, but but what, was, what was also clear is that, you know, I think at least back then there was a degree of frustration on their part that they didn't get the sense of uh, guidance and direction to have, perhaps from us that they, they would have liked. Um, and, you know, and I felt that we could have done uh, a lot more, and I still do think we can do a lot more. But, it, it, but, but the critical penny that dropped for me in that moment was understanding that while the Pacific was really important uh, in its own terms, um, it is really important in terms of our relationship with the United States. It's the one moment where the US gets to see what we look like as a leader. And in that moment, um, suddenly the Pacific is, is foundational to the most important relationship that we have in the world. And indeed, as you know, I wandered around the world uh, campaigning for Australia's election to the UN Security Council and time and again in different contexts with different questions, but nevertheless the, the same sort of topic, which is you know, what's going on in the Pacific, what are we doing in the Pacific? Um, you, know, you, you, you really did kind of get the sense that whether we appreciated it or not, the world saw that for us the Pacific was our calling card and, and they look to us for more than just a sort of statement of our presence in the Pacific, but how we saw the future of the Pacific, what, what, what was our intent. Um, and, and, and in that, you know, I think there is a clearer um, sense when it comes to New Zealand. Um, New Zealand have less, significantly less assets in the Pacific than we have. And that's not really a surprise when you think about it because we're a much bigger country than New Zealand. We have more assets to start with, a lot more assets. Um, but 
but but we do think of New Zealand as much more focused on the Pacific, and that's not unfair because I do think the the the, the New Zealand it forms perhaps more of their identity, and I do think that they their their actions and their place in the Pacific, particularly Polynesia. Um, is carried out with a much greater degree of intent. I think they know what they seek to be and seek to do and, seek, and how they seek to help. Um, and, and in that sense, there is a lot to learn from New Zealand in, in relation to that. And, and the obvious final point is that you know, what became really clear to me is that you know, we are uh, real partners with New Zealand in terms of how we operate in the Pacific. Um, and um, and it's and it's a very important partnership, and, and it should be it, it's something which should be very much at the heart of again probably the closest relationship we have with any country in the world being uh, really our sibling. Yeah, on the United States, I remember a friend in Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade saying there's only one region in the world where the Australian ambassador is more important than the U.S. ambassador, and and that's the Pacific. Uh, so that notion that we can in some sense act as a, as a force multiplier for our ideas by uh, bringing along not only the US but, but presumably European nations that have a presence in those countries as well is, uh, is, sounds really, really wise to me. Yeah, and, and look, and, and that's absolutely right. I mean, if you, uh, throughout those countries, that they uh, see uh, their most important relationship as being with us, not, not with the United States, not with China, not with anyone else, but with us. Um, you know, what I find... Um, concerning is that you know you would struggle to get a whole lot of people um, in the in the foreign policy elite in Canberra to actually name who those countries are, but see Australia as their, their principal relationship. And, and right there, it seems to me there there is an issue. Um, but there were lots. Yeah, I of guess practical... most Australian politicians could uh, name more U.S. presidents than Pacific Island yeah. countries. <laughs> that might be right as well. Um, but there's lots of practical ways in which we were able to work with the US about leveraging their presence um, for, for a really good outcome and, and really good kind of policy intent within the Pacific. And you've got a range of these personal relationships as well, right? Uh, how many um, Pacific Island politicians' numbers would you have in your mobile phone? Oh, that's a good good question. Um, oh, look, I, uh, I think I probably have, still would have, a dozen or so in there, um, maybe more. Um, I'm still in, in contact with um, uh, a number of people in the Pacific and indeed in, in writing this book I've, I've sent it out to a few of them so that's been nice to uh, reconnect with, with a couple. So uh, and, and, and maintaining those relationships over the journey I think is, is really important um, as I mean it is in, in politics as you know Andrew but uh, and I suppose every part of the world is, you could say, is, um, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a people place and it matters to have personal relationships, but it really does feel like that in, in the Pacific. Um, and, you know, I get a lot of joy from being able to uh, not just deal with these people professionally, but to have a whole lot of memories which are actually, you know, pretty personal, where I kind of know who they are as people and, and get some insight um, into what their their lives have been and what they they are as as we you know we might be in shared meetings where we're we're doing the same thing at a, at a trade conference or whatever it is but we come from completely different backgrounds and have a completely different sense of the world and it's there's something exciting about um, trying to understand what that life is. 
Yeah, well, I think that's a, a dozen more f uh, phone numbers than I would have, uh, or probably most other members of parliament. And as you say, those connections really matter. Uh, one of the uh, big ideas in your book is uh, is the notion of using sport to connect, and uh, you point out that uh, in Papua New Guinea the uh, uh, number one sport is uh, NRL, and in Nauru the number one sport is AFL. Uh, do you uh, you recommend that uh, PNG could have a uh, uh, team in the Australian League? Do you think uh, we should aspire for Nauru to have one in the AFL down the track? <laughs> uh, I I think that. Is a big call. So uh, you know, Papua New Guinea is a country of you know seven million people. Um, so I think uh, in time it makes sense to me that uh, they could field a team in the NRL. And actually, I think that time could be relatively quick if we really put our minds to it. And it would undoubtedly, I mean, undoubtedly transform uh, the relationship. And and I, I just think the opportunity associated with that when you really start thinking through what it would mean is so is so big that it just needs to be done um, and, and there isn't really a moment to, to waste in relation to that. Um, Nauru uh, has a population of 10,000 so in some ways it's, um, it's, it's a country town in terms of its size uh, but one thing I've said to the AFL is that you, you know there's one country in the world uh, which has the AFL uh, as its national sport and it's not us you know, it's Nauru and in a sense the sport of AFL um, will not be complete until a citizen of that country is playing in its leagues and, and I really feel like uh, I, I would love to see some effort gone into trying to get someone from Nauru playing in the big league um, and, and on the big stage because I think that would make a huge difference as well um, in terms of the relationship that we have with, with Nauru. Um, and I think that would be a very exciting moment. So not a team, but send over the talent scouts. <laughs> exactly uh, right. The, if, the, if the book has a, a, a central idea to me, it is that notion of... Uh, more effective sharing of government service delivery across the Pacific as being a, a way in which Australia can massively increase the living standards of people in the Pacific. Um, you talk about some of these, uh, the way in which this is working already, um, the uh, US Postal Service serving uh, Micronesia, uh, if pharmaceutical testing for Tonga, Tuvalu and Nauru, uh, but then you go further, suggesting that uh, uh, there might be other ways in which uh, Australia can can help uh, the problem of, of economies of scale in the Pacific, uh, with some populations being, uh, as you say, simply the size of a, 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 a an Australian country town. Yeah, look, I think that's right. And, and, and it goes to really what the small island state story looks like um, and... That's what we're talking about with the countries of the Pacific, with the exception of Papua New Guinea, which you, you really couldn't describe quite in those terms because it is, it is a country of significant size. Although, uh, you, you said at the start, it's a place of very stark geography on the mainland and then surrounded by a whole lot of islands. And so in many ways, it is a collection of small communities uh, as well, which is why you have so many languages on that island. So there is even some similarity for, for PNG in relation to this. But, but what defines the, the story of a small island state, defines it in the Pacific, but defines it in the Caribbean, defines it in the Indian Ocean, is a relatively small population in uh, a geographically remote part of the world. Um, and a whole lot of 
things start flowing from that. How do you build uh, a viable economy when you're talking about that, um, which, which, which isn't heavily focused on, on one activity? And inevitably, a lot of these economies do end up being focused heavily on one activity, which because that's all you can do when you've got a small number of people. Um, how do you deal with the fact that everything costs so much because there's a whole lot of transport costs built into um, everything that is consumed on the island, including power? Um, so th there are a whole lot of challenges which are the, the same for um, all of these small island states. And then you take a step back and, and you look at Australia and what we are is a place that is proximate uh, with highly functioning government um, and with a very sizable economy. Um, and with a bit of wit, it just seems to me that uh, if we could provide better access or perhaps a way, well certainly better access but, but then a better leverage of, of the presence of the Australian system of government and the Australian economy near these islands, that's when I think we can actually make a difference. And, and that is to say development assistance, what we give matters, um, it's a really important statement and we can you know, do it better or worse so it is important that we um, have an appropriate level of development assistance and we're smart in the way and we in the way in which we deploy it. But I just think there is so much more we can do uh, when we think about leveraging just the sheer presence of Australia in the region. So to give you um, an example of, of the economy, which is happening right now, there's the Seasonal Workers Program where people from the Pacific come, work in the horticultural sector in Australia. They're, they're performing a really good service for uh, those farmers, their, their jobs that would by and large be done by uh, normally backpackers, the, the whole arrangement it's a great has been program. worked out. Yeah, and well, the whole, indeed, the whole, but the whole program has been worked out with uh, the union movement, so it's, it's not sort of seen as being a, a form of substitution labour in that sense. There are proper uh, standards of employment being maintained. Um, what is able to be earned by those workers and returned to their communities is, is profound. It, like it, it, it is extraordinary the way in which it's changing people's lives, in which it's enabling people to build businesses back in their, their home countries, uh, but, but just improve their, their standards of living. It, it, it is really deeply significant. And then on the government service side, um, the, the example I use in the book actually relates to Nauru, where for a long time, uh, Australia and, and our agencies here have uh, managed the airspace of Nauru um, and the Nauru airport. Um, so when you go and fly to Nauru and you, you seek to uh, pay your fees for your landing rights and, and traversing Nauru airspace, you're paying somebody in Canberra. Um, and so that is managed through a bureaucracy and an infrastructure which is managing a whole lot of runways all over the country. Um, the revenue from that is then uh, given back to Nauru and used to maintain the airstrip on Nauru. Uh, now that that's that's of marginal um, that, that's marginal extra effort for the Australian bureaucracy. Um, it, it, it probably, in a sense, doesn't cost anything in that that it's really existing people fitting it into the work that they currently do. Um, but what it means, and so really, it, it's kind of. Um, so little effort on our part to, to do this. For Nauru, it means everything. Like it, it, it's, a, it's a hugely important thing that their runway is managed 
in that way and, it, and it's not something that they would be able to do themselves. And when you start thinking through other opportunities for us to leverage the way in which we provide government services to our own population and could we do that at, at marginal extra effort, perhaps even a, a fee-for-service basis for um, countries in the Pacific, suddenly you know, a whole lot of um, ideas present themselves um, and, and it's a way in which we could, obviously with the consent of those, those countries, they've got to want it, it's, it's not, not imposing anything on anyone, it's, it's, it's in a sense offering all of this as a service, but I think there's huge opportunity there to uh, really improve uh, the way in which government services are delivered to the region and, and with our economy, I think there's a huge opportunity to um, enable the the peoples of that region to benefit from our economy and to contribute to it. Um, and, and then I think we're really making a massive difference and we are changing development outcomes and we are changing prosperity. Richard, you talk about uh, the, the right reason for engaging with the Pacific, which has to do in part with our colonial legacy as uh, uh, the rulers of Nauru till 1968 and PNG till 1975. I still think of Sean Dorney's uh, book, The Embarrassed Colonialist, uh, characterising so much of our relationship with PNG. Uh, but then you, uh, you also talk about uh, a, a bad reason for engaging, which is uh, the argument you sometimes hear that Australia should engage with the Pacific because if we don't, then China will. Uh, why is that the wrong way of thinking about the Pacific engagement? Well, firstly, it's, 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 I'm not naive about this. Like the, the Pacific is a place of strategic contest, um, as pretty well everywhere in the world now is, but the Pacific certainly is that. And we have strategic interests in the Pacific and, and we shouldn't be shy about them. So I'm certainly not making that argument. But what I am saying is that I don't think we will be successful in pursuing our strategic interests in the Pacific uh, by presenting to the Pacific on terms where we say, um, we want to be your friends, but only if we won't be friends with anyone else, uh, because I just don't think that's going to work. Um, I, I, I think that we need to make the basis of our engagement with the Pacific, the Pacific itself. We need to make out the basis of our engagement with the Pacific, the welfare of those who live there and seeking to work out ways in which we can listen to the Pacific about what they want and then through that help support them in terms of their development and, and do what we can to bring prosperity to the peoples of the Pacific but having their welfare first and foremost in our minds. I think if we do all of that, um, actually, I think that's the best way to then pursue the strategic objectives that we have in the region. In fact, I think the strategic objectives will, will pretty naturally follow from that. But I think if we turn up um, and, and, and in a sense say that, that we're only here because we don't want those people over there, because we, we don't want to see those people over there be part of or be engaged in the Pacific, um, I, I just can't see how that is a strategy which works. Um, and, and I think it's really important, therefore, that even from the perspective of pursuing the legitimate strategic interests that we have, that we get the frame right, um, that the reason, that, that the primary reason why we are there um, is to help. Um, and that will be the best way in which we can pursue the strategic interests that we have.
One of the key issues for the Pacific is uh, what we do about climate change. And uh, you, you talk about uh, Kiribati in particular as being a nation which is uh, especially susceptible to climate change. What should Australia be doing on climate change, not just in terms of our own domestic policies, which I guess listeners will know a fair bit about, but also in terms of how we assist countries in the Pacific um, for whom sea level rise is an existential threat? Well, the starting point is that our own domestic policies, I think, matter in terms of from the Pacific's point of view, because I, th I think really what it defines is our bona fides here. Uh, I, I, now, I think during the, the Rudd-Gillard years, it was pretty clear that we were seeking to uh, reduce Australia's global, uh, reduce Australia's emissions, that we, we were seeking to um, do something uh, around meaningful action on climate change. And, and I think what that did was, was establish our bona fides in then being able to engage with the Pacific. So, so I think our domestic policy matters in a sense as, as almost the, the entry ticket to play uh, in the Pacific when it comes to the whole question of climate change. But once we're there, well, then I think really our job is to do everything we can to help support the Pacific in telling their story to the world and not tell it for them, but to help support them in telling their story to the world as a part of the world which is really on the front line of, of climate change. And obviously different parts of the Pacific are more affected than others, but you mentioned Kiribati. I mean, Kiribati is one of four low-lying uh, coral atoll nations in the world. Three of those are in the Pacific. The other two in the Pacific are Tuvalu and the Marshall Islands. Um, so, you know, the highest place above sea level in Kiribati is probably, you know, three or four metres above sea level. Um, it, 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 the, the, the place is a series of lagoons. Um, and it's obviously susceptible to sea level rise, but well before that happens, uh, changes in weather pattern have a profound impact upon the water security, the freshwater security of the islands and, and for their populations. And during those three years, I saw that play out in both Kiribati and, uh, and Tuvalu in really significant ways. Um, and, it, it, and, and there is an opportunity for us to help you know, in a very practical way, those countries tell their stories. So um, I spoke at the UN Security Council in New York in its first debate from a security point of view, a global security point of view, about the impact of climate change. Um, I spoke about Australia. I spoke about us uh, as players in the Pacific. But most significantly, I spoke after the President of Nauru spoke, who was sitting beside me, who told his story and really I was there to to back him up. Um, it was on, on the day that both of us spoke, it was his uh, article which was published in the New York Times and was, was, was really powerful. Coming out of that trip the, and, and that debate, the UN uh, Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon expressed an interest in uh, coming to the Pacific and I was invited to speak with his office about how where he might go and how that might look. Um, and, and from that, we ended up facilitating through, um, you know, the, the, the IP airplane fleet that the Australian government has, uh, a trip for him to visit Kiribati, which, which is something he would never have done otherwise. And, and I was really fortunate enough to go with him. And on that trip, we, uh, you know, we planted um, uh, mangroves, which was, was a kind of natural seawall that is being deployed in, in Kiribati. 
we we visited um, a person's house who's literally whose whose kitchen at high tide had water coming into it, and we went there at high tide and watched the water come into it. Like, uh, and and for me to stand there looking at the Secretary General of the United Nations see that for himself uh, was really a completely extraordinary moment. You know, you, you had a sense that we could make a difference. And, and we weren't doing any of the talking. Um, it, it, it was Anode Tong, who was the president of Kiribati, who was really telling the story, who was um, explaining his country's situation, the sorts of appalling decisions that he as the leader of that country had to face in respect of climate change. We were in the background, but we were critically in the background. You know, but for the support that we were providing, um, Ban Ki-moon would never have been to Kiribati, and I think it really mattered that he went there. Um, and I think it's just a, a small example of, of the kind of role that we can play in sincerely helping the Pacific to tell its story. And, I, and, and I, there was a lot of gra- gratitude that we were able to do that. But, you know, I think before we kind of got to do that, they wanted to know that we came to this with a sincere heart. And I think we demonstrate that by our own domestic policies. But I, I feel like it's a... You know, it's probably as significant a role as we've got on the global stage is, is to you know, help quietly in the background but really significantly the Pacific to tell its story because it is so compelling. Richard, finally, let me ask you, for somebody who wants to better understand the Pacific, where do they go? Uh, I mean, of course, they read your splendid 89-page book, but that's uh, uh, merely the work of an evening. Uh, Can you tell us some of your other favourite books or articles that you've read that have opened your eyes to the Pacific? And and when international travel resumes, can you give us a sense of a a few of your favourite places, places that you would suggest an Australian who's never been to the Pacific should go? Um, They're really good questions. Uh, I think uh, I would recommend the writings of Sean Dorney, uh, who's written you know, a number of books about mm. the Pacific, um, but also a, a range of articles about the Pacific. I, I think Sean um, is someone who has spent an enormous part of his life in uh, PNG. He's an incredibly sensitive um, and, and empathetic person. Um, he's... Uh, uh, he, he, he's, his wife is from Papua New Guinea now, so he um, is himself really a, a, a member of the PNG family and um, his wife is from Manus. Um, and, and so he knows, he, uh, I mean, it, 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 he, PNG is, is in his bones, but, and not just PNG, but, but the rest of the Pacific. So I think I would, I would look there really. And, and obviously, though, as, a, as an Australian, he has a, um, a, a way of interpreting that for, for us. So I think in terms of reading, um, I, I'd probably direct people to, to Sean. Um, there, there are, I mean, the Pacific is, it, 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 when, when the world opens up, there are parts of the Pacific which are really easy to get to and they're the parts where there is a significant tourist industry and uh, Vanuatu is uh, you know, very close by, very easy to get to. Uh, people obviously go to Fiji, uh, Cook Islands um, is a bit further out, some are, but all of them have tourist industries. You can go to those places and if you go beyond the tourist haunts, um, you can actually see uh, a, you know, what the Pacific looks like beyond the hotel. So in a sense, probably the simplest thing to do is have a holiday in the Pacific like you normally would, but take the time 
to actually have a few days of that holiday where you do kind of go beyond the hotel and, and beyond the beaches and, and actually try and explore the culture of the place. Um, I, I, I think beyond that, um, you know, I, I feel like Papua New Guinea is the most exotic country in the world. I, I, I still feel that to this day and it is right there. Um, and so for the more intrepid traveller, um, I, I think having Papua New Guinea on your radar as, as an absolutely must-see place in the world um, is really important. Um, there, there'll be a whole lot of people who, in Australia who uh, go off and do a safari in Africa and that's fantastic, or they might visit the Amazon, the Guazu Falls, they do all of those things. Um, you, what is to be seen in PNG is all of that and more, um, and it is right there. Uh, and it's and what defines PNG is absolutely the natural beauty of the place, but much more than that, um, it is the people. Um, it, it, generous, colourful, um, full of life. Uh, it, it is just an absolutely remarkable place to go. It is truly the land of the unexpected. Um, and you know, I've, you know, I've been there many times now. I couldn't encourage people to go more. Richard, your uh, intellectual interest in the Pacific is uh, remarkable and uh, your love and passion for the region really uh, shines through both your writings and the conversation today. Um, thanks for sharing your insights. It's a pleasure, Andrew. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs>